Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 28. To wrap up our study of the book of Matthew this morning. Talking a little bit about the Great Commission. I want to tell you a story first, though. Uh, my first job, my first like official job, not mowing the neighbor's lawn, but where I had to actually go in and punch a time card, was working for the garden center at Kmart. And uh, some of you who've been around long remember the Kmart, or some of you remember there was such a thing as Kmart. Other of you <laughs> may not. It's where Tractor Supply used to be, and I worked in the back in the garden center. I'd get shifted around to other places, but that was my first official job. And uh, I remember very vividly, my, my manager, every time I would report in, my manager would give me a task to do. He would put me on that task, but it was always in really vague terms. I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to get it done. He would just say something like, you know, rearrange the fertilizer display. And then he would rush off, right? I mean, the man was just, he was, he was frenetic. He was constantly in her, he sweat, he would sweat all day long, right? He would show up, he's just sweating, sweating, churning, churning. He'd give me a job. He'd say, okay, rearrange the fertilizer display. And then he'd rush off. And I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to do it. But I did know this in about 15, 20 minutes, he would rush back and say, no, 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 just leave that alone. I need you to go over here and, and unload all these rose bushes. And, he, and he'd, he'd yank me to the next job, right? So I wouldn't finish that job, which I really didn't know how to do because I didn't have instructions. Until I, and, and then he'd yank me to the next one that I didn't know how to do. And so I would go, go through my entire shift of eight hours just going from job to job to job, not knowing exactly what I was, was supposed to do, finishing absolutely nothing, right? A little bit frustrating, right? So after four weeks, I got my first review. And he said to me, he said, Brian, you're a really hard worker, but you never finish anything. <laughs> ah, ah, oh, man. To his credit, he gave me a raise. You know, okay, well, that, that, that helps a little bit. But, I mean, it was such a frustrating job. What exactly am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to rearrange the display? What, is that, what does that mean Exactly. I unload the roses and put them where I just, I, I never knew. I didn't know what I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to get it done. I don't know if you ever had a job like that. It's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. When we were last with our disciples in Matthew chapter 28, they were very frustrated. They were discouraged and despairing and disoriented. They thought they knew what they were supposed to do. Get on a throne in Jerusalem and rule over Israel and over all of the world with Jesus, right? They, they knew what they were called to do. They knew what it meant to follow Jesus, and then he died. And then he rose from the dead. And then he kept talking about kingdom again. <laughs> but kingdom in a very different form. And so Jesus, what he did is he spent the next 40 days explaining to them in very explicit terms what they were supposed to do. Because Jesus didn't want them to be disoriented and frustrated and discouraged. He didn't want them to be wondering about what their job was supposed to to be exactly. And he doesn't want that for us either. And he wants us to understand who we are and why we're here. William Barclay once said, There are two great days in a person's life, the day we are born and the day we discover why. Today we're going to talk about why. Two great days, the day that you're born and the day you figure out why you were born and what you were here for. And so today we're going to talk about why. I want you to read with me Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. 
But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Church, what's our job? Make disciples. Our job is to make disciples. That's why we're here. You may have other roles and responsibilities. You may have other tasks that you do, but ultimately your job is to make disciples. Church, that's why we actually exist. Now, what that means in the negative is this. You're, You're not actually just here to go to school, finish a degree, get a job, find a spouse, raise a family, set aside money for your retirement, retire, and die. That's not why you're here. (laughs) That's not why you're here. I want you to notice, again, read with me verse 19. My translation says, go therefore and make disciples. Literally, it reads like this. As you are going, make disciples. So as you are studying, as you are graduating, as you are getting a job, as you are working, as you are raising a family, as you are in the process of retirement, as you are going, with echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 6, as you're walking in the way, as you're raising a family, as you're preparing a meal, as you're doing all these things, here's your job, make disciples. That's our calling, that's our job, that's our role, that's our task. As we are doing all of the normal and necessary things to live on the face of the earth, this is what we're called to do, make disciples. So that begs the question, what exactly is a disciple? What is a disciple? It comes from the Greek word mathetes, which means simply a learner or a follower. Teachers in the Greek and Roman world would gather around themselves uh, mathetes. They'd gather disciples or learners. And their goal, their desire, was not just that these disciples would uh, learn a philosophy or learn information, but that they would learn a way of life. That they would follow in a way of life or a pattern of living. So a disciple is one who follows in a pattern of living. Read with me again, chapter 28, verse 19. As you are going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, this is how you get it done. You baptize them. Teachers would baptize their followers or their students. A student would come along, he'd say, I want to, I want to explore a little bit. I'm going to listen for a while to this teacher. And as he became convinced that the teacher had something to say, and that the teacher's way of life was good, he would receive baptism from that teacher. That is, he would identify himself with the teacher, the teacher's philosophy, and the teacher's way of life. That's what baptism is. It's identification with. And so Jesus says, this is how you make disciples. You teach them to identify with Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not that their old identities disappear, but now they have a new and transcendent identity which is attached to God that governs all the rest of their roles and responsibilities and relationships in life. In other words, Jesus says, teach them that they're not just Jews, children of Abraham. They're not just farmers and fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors. They're not just Roman citizens. They're not just politicians. 
They're not just workers and owners of businesses. They may have all of these roles and responsibilities. And as they are fulfilling those, their first and foremost and highest identity is to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with a new identity, transformed and and transcendent, now all of life will be shaped by that. So it won't just be what they know and what they learn, but the way that they live will be governed in all of these relationships by this new identity attached to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, verse 19. As you are going, as you're studying, as you're graduating, as you're working, as you're raising a family, as you are going, make disciples of all the nations teaching them to identify themselves, to capture their their sense of who they are in Father, Son, and Spirit, made in the image of God, designed to glorify and honor Him, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, teach them not just the information, but teach them to be transformed. Teach them to obey. Listen to Paul's description, kind of a, a synthesis of what he means by a disciple. Galatians 4, verse 19. He put it like this. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. See the graphic image? Paul says, I'm like, a, I'm like your mother. And, 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 and I want to see Christ formed in, in you. Right. So, so it's, Christ is, is in your mind, but he's in your shoulders and in your fingers and in your your, your your legs and your feet, Christ is formed in you. So the very character of Christ, what, what Jesus loves, what, what he cares about, what Jesus does, all of those things are now reflected through you and your body and your personality and all that you are. Paul says, I want to see Christ actually formed in you, and, and I want it so bad that it feels like I'm in labor. I long for this. I've been wrestling um, for the last... Uh, several months actually, trying to come up with what's, what's a, a definition that resonates for me that's really simple to describe what a disciple is. And this is kind of where I am right now in my, my understanding. I would put it like this. A disciple is a person who loves, who learns to love most what matters most. I want to put it in really practical terms. So I've been just kind of running this through my mind, seeing if it really, if it's going to stick for me. And it's starting to stick a little bit. A disciple is this. It's a person who learns. It's a person who's in process. And what that person is learning is to love most what matters most. Because we all love things, but do we love the things that actually matter most? And are those things first and foremost and preeminent in our, in our lives? As we said uh, last week, we do what we love, right? When our heart actually loves something and longs for it, we will follow with our attitudes and our speech and our behavior will chase down that thing. And so what's a disciple? A disciple is just a person who figured it out. What matters most? Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, who came to earth to remove the dead of our sins and to teach us a way of life. And what's his way of life? Well, Jesus loves most what matters most. And what does Jesus love? He loves his Father, and he loves his Father's kingdom. And what's his Father's kingdom? Well, it's not property, it's people. Right? A disciple is one who's in the process of learning and being transformed to love most what matters most. So I want you to take just a moment and think to yourself, what do you love the most? Or what, I mean, what really, really captures your heart? Because whatever you love, you'll, you'll praise. 
Right? You're going to exalt this thing because it's valuable to you. You will also want to replicate it in the lives of others. You love it and you want others to love it. It's valuable to you. You want it to be valuable to them. The things that you really love the most, you want to talk about. And consequently, you want to replicate those things. Now, for some of you right now, I get it. It's, you know, we're a week away from graduation. It's graduation, right? An, an, a, an A&M degree is what maybe has captured your heart and you, you love it the most. I mean, you don't have the paper yet and you probably don't have a job, but you've got, you've got a degree, right? Or maybe what you fell in love with was not the degree, but really your, your degree. Like you, you have a passion for engineering or you have a passion for education or you have a passion for accounting. Well, actually, nobody has a passion for accounting. I don't I mean, I, I'd reveal my biases. You just do accounting. But anyway, right? You've got a passion for something. You said, no, I, I'm not here even for all of that. School's my excuse. I love, man, I have a passion for Aggie football or Aggie, Aggie baseball, Aggie soccer, Aggie hockey. Do you know we have a hockey team, right? Maybe that's your, 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 the thing that's got your passion. Or maybe your passion is, man, I, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my children. I love, I love my family. All of those are, are great passions, but they're, they're secondary passions. And as you are going, as you are studying, as you are graduating, as you are doing your engineering or suffering through your accounting, as you are going, make disciples, teaching others to identify with Father, Son, and Spirit because that's most valuable. Love most what matters most. Okay, this is a disciple. A disciple is one who loves most what matters most. Now, to make a disciple, if that's our job, it assumes that we are disciples. So how do we become disciples? Well, it starts the moment that we move out of a feudal life and the kingdom of darkness into light. It begins that moment that you first believe that Jesus, in fact, did die for your sins. Not the sins of the world, but you acknowledge, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm the one who has a debt, and you have paid my debt. Thank you. You, you, you come to Jesus, and you're, you offer nothing. You simply receive, and you say, thank you. Thank you for removing the debt of my sins. The moment you do that, you have eternal life. You have life that lasts forever. And God's spirit comes and dwells inside of you, lives inside of you. I can't describe in physical terms how that happens. But I can tell you, your spirit is now connected with the spirit of God. You're able to listen to the voice of God and speak to God. And as God, through his spirit, speaks to you, he begins that process of making you a disciple, right? Salvation is an absolutely free gift. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. That's what grace means. God's unmerited, unchanging love toward you in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ paid your debt. It's an absolutely free gift. But as you learn to follow Jesus, you learn that following him will eventually, in a sense, cost you everything, right? You'll have to say no to all of the the foolish, stupid things that you go after, all of the sinful, self-destructive behaviors, but also all of those things that you love most that aren't as as important to God will have to take a step down. This is what Jesus said when he was speaking to his disciples. He said, really, if you want to come and follow after me, you have to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your your family, hate, hate all these things. And he wasn't saying emotionally dislike them. What he's saying is they're just not as important as me. And you're going to have to learn to say no to all of those things. As you learn to follow Jesus, Jesus becomes absolutely preeminent in your life. And your life begins to be shaped 
by the very life of Jesus. You begin to love the things that actually matter. And it's not that you emotionally hate those things, but you love them for the sake of Jesus now. You love them even better. Because all of those things, as you are going, studying, working, raising your family, can be used to exalt Jesus Christ in every area of life. The disciple is one whose loves have been transformed to the things that Jesus actually loves. And so all of the lesser loves, the foolish things are set aside, the lesser loves are put down, the greatest love, which is Jesus, becomes the dominating force in life. That's our identity. And then the disciple begins to learn what Jesus loves is he loves the lost. Then I want to love the lost. See, a disciple is one who's not just following Jesus, but one who's reproducing the life of Jesus in others. A disciple is one who makes disciples. That's the nature of discipleship. So notice our task. There's actually a little bit more. It says, go therefore as you are going and make disciples of all of the nations. But our task is this. Make disciples of all of the nations. Now, the Greek word that is used here by Matthew is ethne. Our, our English word that we get from that is ethnic, right? Ethnic groups. We, we describe it in uh, terms of people groups, right? There are 196 nations, nation states on earth, but there are about 16,000, over 16,000 people groups. That is groups that identify with one another based on their language and their culture and their history. 16,000 groups. Uh, in China alone, I think there are about 56 ethne, people groups. In India, I think there are over 450, not including all of the caste structure within people groups, like language, culture, food, history, how they identify with one another, 16,000 groups. And as best as we can tell, of those 16,000, there are 7,000 that are considered unreached. In a world of 7.5 billion people, 16,000 people groups, 7,000 are actually unreached, which means there's not an, an indigenous population of Christians that are capable of going out and reaching their own people. Less than 2% normally of Christians living in that population. Of that 7,000 that are unreached, you know there are 3,000 that don't have a single missionary or a church or a believer that we know of. Jesus says, here's your job. Make disciples of all nations. Church, that's why we're here. Now you may hear that and go, well, that's, that's overwhelming. Can we pick something a little smaller? <laughs> Can we pick something that doesn't feel quite so overwhelming? And the answer is no. You can't. We don't actually get to choose our mission. We don't get to choose our purpose. And why God has made us and why we are here. So, where do we draw the strength from? Hey, where do we find the motivation to say, you know, I get it now. I'm listening to the voice of the Spirit and I'm recognizing, I'm acknowledging. It's not enough for me to live for a degree. It's not enough to live for a job. It's not enough to live to find a spouse. It's not enough to live to to retire and cruise into the grave. (laughs) I don't want to do that. I want to live for what Jesus says actually, truly matters in this life. So where do I draw motivation from? I'm going to give you a few biblical motivations for chasing after the Great Commission. The first is this. It's simply gratitude. 
2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul said this. He said, the love of Christ controls us. And he's not talking about our love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for us. He says, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one, that is Jesus, died for all, therefore all died. We are identified with Jesus in his death. And he says, that one died for all so that those who live, that's us, the church, would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. The love of Christ controls us. When we receive a wonderful gift, the natural response is, thank you. Right? It's just gratitude. Right? When we give our kids something really great at Christmas and they don't say thank you, we take it away. <laughs> I'm tempted to, right? We're tempted to. No, we, we say, okay, we have to have a moment here. We ha- we need, I need to socialize you. I need to teach you normal human behavior. You receive a wonderful gift and you say, thank you. Right? And I want to train your heart to be grateful because that's the natural response to a wonderful gift. God has given us eternal life, people. That means we don't live in fear. We live in confidence and hope. God has given us eternal life, life that never ends. God has given us purpose and meaning. God has given us his spirit that transforms our attitudes and gives us courage as we enter into the hardships of life. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and we want to say thank you. Thank you. Teach us to love what you love. Right? Our first motivation is simply gratitude. Second, compassion. Matthew 9, verse 36 Jesus looked out and he saw multitudes of people and it says he felt compassion, that he was moved in his innermost being for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The more you love what Jesus loves, you love the people around you. And the more that you love the people around you, you begin to explore what's actually happening in their lives. And I'm telling you, there is just deep darkness and distress and pain all around you. All around you, you just have to slow down enough to stop and ask and listen and love. And you will discover there are broken people everywhere. I mean, they take showers and shave and dress up and go to work or church. But walk in with with lots of pain. And the more we love what Jesus loves, we love people because that's what Jesus loves and we begin to let God's Spirit move us right in our deepest being with compassion. Third is simply obedience. Great Commission starts like this. All authority has been given to me. So all authority has been given to me. It's not been given to you. It's been given to me. So this is what I say. This is what I want you to do. All authority is mine. It's not yours. I get to choose. When I talk to other church leaders and they're wrestling, trying to figure out you know, their mission and that kind of thing, I go, well, you do know that you actually don't get to choose. It's right here. It's in Matthew 28 and Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. You don't get to choose. Jesus chose it for you. This is your mission. Christians, individually, corporately, church, we don't get to choose. We, we obey. It's not the great suggestion, great opinion, great idea. Hey, how about... You know, if nothing else satisfies you, try this. That's not what Jesus says. This is a great commission. It's a commandment. It's an imperative. In fact, there's only one uh, imperative in the great commission. It says, as you are going, make disciples. By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. But there's just one actual command or imperative, and it is this. It's make disciples. 
Now, most of us in here are Americans. Some of you are not Americans, but you've probably been in the United States long enough to discover that we love democracy. We are we the people. <laughs> we the people, right? Power to the people, democracy. That's, that's what we're into. And we think all nations on earth should have democracy. We believe in democracy, right? But you do know that democracy is not the ultimate form of government. The ultimate form of government is actually dictatorship. Stay with me. <laughs> Just stay with me for a second. Someday there will be a perfect kingdom and it will be ruled by one. And he's all knowing, right? He understands everything. He's also all wise. So he understands everything and he knows the best out of everything. And he's all loving and all good and actually all powerful and able to accomplish his will. And he is the singular ruler over all, the ultimate autocrat dictator. And we have the greatest blessings when we live comfortably in submission to his rule and reign. That's the ultimate government, right? Maybe democracy is the best we can do right now, but I'm just telling you, man, that's it. All powerful, all wise, all loving, all goodness flowing through the one who is Jesus ruling and reigning over us. And he says, now all authority has been given to me. This is what I'm telling you to do. And he's telling us to do that because this is where our lives are most fulfilled and satisfied because he knows and we don't. So we're best off when we say we give in, right? Fourth is worship. Turn back to the book of Revelation with me, Revelation chapter 7. As you know, there are certain drums that I beat over and over and over again um, because they're just so aligning in my life and um, what's important, I think, to Jesus. One of the passages that I I beat a lot and I come back to uh, in my own personal quiet times and I put it in front of you consistently is Revelation chapter 7 because it shows us what things are like in the end. So this is where we should be moving right now. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then all the angels join in, those who are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worship God, saying, Amen, that's right. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and everything else we can think of. Be to our God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Right? The church gathered from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And the angels say, we got to get in on some of this. This is the point of existence for all of eternity. And church, now as we gather and we worship together, or as we worship in our car, and we set our attention, our devotion on what really matters, the the beauty and greatness and kindness of God. God changes our hearts, transforms our hearts, and as he shifts our hearts to what matters most, we love Jesus more, and we love the people that Jesus loves, the lost. And we're motivated, right? We, We worship so that we will go witness, because it changes us, transforms us. Gratitude, compassion, obedience, worship. Now, let's get practical. How do we get it done? How do we step into this mission? 
I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1, where the Great Commission is repeated but in different words. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There are three great resources that the church has been given. The first is the Spirit of God. The first is the Spirit of God. You recall that uh, as Jesus was going to the cross, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to his three closest friends, stay here, watch, pray, and they do what? They sleep. They sleep. They're frightened. They're nervous. They're tired. They just ate a meal. They don't understand that they're engaged in this cosmic battle, and so they sleep. Now, Jesus says, I have your attention post-resurrection. He says, I want you to wait for power. I want you to watch and pray. And so what do you see the disciples doing next? They get everybody together, and they pray. Not for five minutes, but for hour after hour after hour, because they are dependent Right? They're, they're aggressively dependent upon God. They acknowledge right, this all nations. <laughs> there's, there's only a few of us. And you're saying all nations, we, we can't do that. And Jesus said, I know you can't, but I can if you wait. And he pours out his spirit upon them. And his spirit transforms them. The same spirit actually that dwells in each and every one of you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Exactly the same spirit of God. And they move from fearful and cowering to courageous faith, just like that. Why has God given us his spirit? Not to accomplish our will. So sometimes we say, I'm not really experiencing the spirit of God in my life. It's because I'm pursuing my own will. Or you want to experience the spirit of God in your life, align your life with the will of God, and then you will experience the spirit of God. The spirit of God is, is the most powerful force. As he indwells you, he transforms you if you say yes to his way. The Spirit of God. Second, the Word of God. Turn to Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. This is Luke's record of Christ's great commission, which apparently he gave multiple times through that 40-day period. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now Jesus said to him, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all of the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to him, Thus it is written that the Christ or the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to wait or to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, that is, the Spirit. Now, read with me again. Verse 44. These are the words that I spoke while I was with you, that all the things written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the psalm must be fulfilled. And says, then he just opened their minds. He said, you know what? The scripture points to me. The scripture points to me. Psalms, prophets, Moses, Pentateuch, all of them point to me. The word of God 
as the writer of Hebrews says, is living and active and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. It lays open the heart as we are going in the power of the Spirit of God, taking the truth of the Word of God, we can make disciples. So the Word of God is powerful. I love this verse from the book of Jeremiah. The Lord says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters rock? You know, someone whose heart is hard, well, the Word of God alone can penetrate it. You can't, your words can't, but the Word of God can. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, and then the people of God. We're, we're the strategy. Jesus could have gotten this done a lot of different ways. You know, riding in the clouds, shouting from the heavens. Angels probably might have been a more efficient way to get it done. But he said, I'm going I'm to use you. Which had, to the disciples had to be just overwhelming right in the moment because there were 11 of them left and maybe another 100 more. So there were 120 followers that Jesus started with. And he said, I'm going to take you 120 and I want you to make disciples of all of the nations. You're the strategy. You're it. So how do we get it done? Well, let me illustrate for you. Let me illustrate for you. Um, Our calling is not just to be disciples, but to make disciples who make disciples. It's it's the math of of spiritual multiplication. As Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will teach others also, right? Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. Four generations right there. It's spiritual multiplication. So let let me give us our our options. So imagine this morning that I say, you know, I got this. I can do this. And and the way that I'm going to do it is I am going to lead a thousand people to Christ every day of the year. So for 365 days of the year, every day, I will lead a thousand people to Christ. I might have a a team around me to set up all of my revivals, but I'm going to kill it, right? I'm just (laughs) every day. 365 days a year, a 1,000 people. You know how long it would take me to accomplish reaching the current population, 7.5 billion? Take me over 12,000 years. By which point in time, obviously I'd be dead, but also the population would be far beyond anything that could be reached. Now, on the other hand, if I say, you know, I don't know if anybody else wants to get into this with me, but I'm going to make disciples. But I'm not going to worry about 1,000 a day. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to invest in just one person every year. I'm going to pray that God lets me lead just one person into a saving knowledge of Jesus every year. I'm going to teach that person how to pray, how to read the word and apply it, how to worship, how to witness, speak their testimony. I'm going to teach that person their meaning and purpose in life to be a disciple and to make disciples of others. I'm going to spend one year with that person. And then I'm going to pray that in the next year that he goes off and he does the same and I'm going to do the same as well. And that's my strategy. That's all I got. Because that's actually what Jesus told us to do. All right, so that's all. I'm going to do what Jesus said. I'm going to do that. Even if no one else does. Now here's how the math works. If I do that consistently and I, each year, pick just one more person. And each of the people that I disciple, they go out and they just pick one more person each year. Here's how the math works. In 28 years, just from that beginning, year one, there would be 268 million disciples. Right, and I see some of you, you know, you're pulling out your phone to calculate. It's really easy math. You can check me on this. I'm fine, I'm fine with that. 28 years, there'd be 268 million. Just the power of multiplying disciples. In 32 years, there'd be 4.29 billion disciples. That's assuming nobody drops the ball. But if I'm not in it alone, we could get there. 
The 33rd year, right, from year 32 to 33, there's 8.59 billion disciples. Just because we all committed each year to pouring our lives and investing into one, teaching that one person how to reproduce spiritually. Let me give you an illustration, visually. Um, This weekend, one of our former students is in town for uh, a wedding. And uh, Ronnie came to faith while he was at Texas A&M. I think it was his freshman year. Uh, The guy who was getting married this weekend led him to faith in Christ. And then uh, he was discipled by this guy right here who's actually back in town now. Ben had a vision for discipleship, so Ben discipled uh, Ronnie. Ronnie caught the vision and caught the strategy, understood, and Ronnie began to to make disciples. And Ronnie's actually now in India making disciples. He's just back in for a couple months this summer. All of this transpired in about four years. All of it transpired in about four years uh, because one guy had a vision for pouring his life into others. So now imagine if you walked out of here and you said, that's me. And I walk out and I said, that's me. And we all walked out and said, you know, that's me. I will do that. We transform a city, transform a state, transform a nation, transform the world in our generation if we actually get it and do it. And it's really not that complicated, church. Uh, we can do this thing. Not, not on our own. But we can do it in the power of God's spirit. So what's holding us back? When Jesus came in Matthew 28 and he spoke to his disciples, it says they came up to him and they worshipped, but some were doubtful. Right? They worshipped, but some were doubtful. Some, some were like, resurrection? Really? Still? Okay, I've got I to gotta put my hand in your side one more time. One more time. Let me touch the scars. And others were doubtful about this mission because their lives had been on a track and it was get a throne and rule and reign. Right? They had a commitment to what they thought was, this is life. This is the good life. This is what, what life has to offer. And they were so committed that, that now when Jesus uprooted that and said, no, I'm actually not establishing that form of the kingdom right now. Right now, what I want you to do is I want you to bear witness and you're going to suffer a lot. And, like, and some worship, but some were doubtful. But then Jesus, over the course of 40 days, began to reorient their hearts and their minds and they became men who were no longer fearful, but they were, they were just filled with faith and courage. They weren't doubtful, but they were devoted to Jesus and his cause because they said yes to the Spirit. And all that I'm challenging you to do this morning is really simple. I just want you to say yes to the Spirit. It's a really good thing to say to the Spirit of God. Don't say no. Just this morning say, Holy Spirit, I, I invite you to disrupt my life. I invite you to disrupt my life and teach me how to give my life for others. Just invite the Spirit to just shake you up a bit and move you a different direction. Say, this is my purpose. My purpose is not over here. My purpose is right here. Make disciples of all nations. Let me give you a couple of practical things I want to challenge you to do here in just a moment. As William Barclay said, there are two great days in a person's life, the day we are born, the day we discover why. You can't walk out of here not knowing why. Can't walk out of here not knowing why. So let's do a couple of hows. How do we do this? Um, if I could, we're, we're going to close in communion. If I could ask the men to go back and get us prepared, I'm going to give you three applications. Now, you know I'm usually not this clever, but it just so happened that all three application points uh, start with an I. Okay, I, I was, uh, I, I'm alliterating, so you can, you can remember it. The first 
application is identify. Identify your Jerusalem, your Judea and Samaria, and your uttermost parts of the earth. Your Jerusalem is the people who are around you who are like you. They're friends and family, people you have a relationship with already, people that you, you interact with easily. And I want you to begin to make a list, those who don't know Jesus, and pray. Right? Identify your Jerusalem. Identify your Judea, Samaria. That's people who, they may be a little bit further away from you and they're a little bit different from you. Maybe their socioeconomic status is different, higher or lower than yours. Their culture is a bit different. Maybe their language is different, but they're somewhat nearby. Your uh, uttermost parts of the earth, well, that, that could be anywhere. Okay, that could be people who are completely different and completely distant from you. And you say, well, How could I possibly invest in those people? Remember, we're we're inviting the Spirit to just shake up our world a little bit this morning, right? We're saying, yes, Lord. (laughs) Not, no, Lord. Maybe you should go. You know all those people who are missionaries? They weren't born missionaries. They They weren't born thinking... I'm going to be a missionary. They're born saying, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be whatever. They weren't born missionaries. At some point in time, Spirit was really challenging their hearts, and they just said yes. And so I don't know if God is calling you to to leave this place and this job and to go and learn new language and culture. I don't know. But have you ever just stopped and said, well, maybe. And if the Spirit says go, then yes, I'll go. Or maybe you just need to, to learn to pray. Maybe you don't know a single missionary and you need to, 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 to become friends with somebody who is there. Our missions department can get you their prayer letters and their email and you can write and you can Skype and when they come in, you can have them to a meal. And, you, and once you really get to know them and their kids, you might really say, man, I actually like these people. They're not so weird after all. And I want to pray for them and their needs. And you begin to pray. Or maybe you give and you begin to give sacrificially because you say, you know, I don't need that extra latte. I could give four bucks this week to that missionary. And it's a little, but it's going to grow because it's going to grow my heart. And you begin to give. Or maybe you look around and you say, you know, there are international students all throughout this community. We have a lot in, uh, here at Anderson. Most of the, these are, are folks who, who love Jesus and worship with us. But, you know, then they're going to go back. And they're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And maybe you want to spend some time investing in these international students who are in our midst, get them in your home, share a meal, love on them, pray for them. Right? Identify your Jerusalem, your Judea, Samaria, your uttermost parts of the earth and say, maybe, maybe I need to go. Initiate. I want to challenge you this week to initiate a spiritual conversation. Okay? And it, it doesn't mean that you're going to close the deal and you'll see somebody trust Christ necessarily. I just want to challenge you, initiate a spiritual conversation this week. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were down in uh, Orlando for a conference, several of us pastors, and uh, Zach and I were working out in the workout room, and this lady came in, and she got on the elliptical, and she's going. Zach and I finished our workout. We went upstairs. I realized I had no water, so I went back to the workout area. I'm filling up my water. As I walk in, I saw her. She's still going. I said, hey, way to go. You're still going. And she said, thanks. I lost 100 pounds this year. I was like, wow. So that's amazing. And then she began to just open up. I said, way to go. I'm so impressed, man. You must have really changed your habits and stuff. She goes, yeah, I did this and this. We started talking about the habits she changed. And I began to talk about, I said, you know, Jesus helps me change my habits. He helps me do different things. And he gives me strength, not just in my physical 
world, but also in my spiritual world. I started talking about that, and then she began to talk about she's a single mom and her son, and she was away from him on a business trip, and we, man, we got into the gospel. I'm just saying, pray and nudge and seek to initiate one spiritual conversation this week and see what God does. And if you get a good story, if you get just an, you get a bad story, get a, any story, would you send that to me and share that? Third, invest. And I want you to just look around in your, your Jerusalem area. Say, who, who, could, who could I just spend time with intentionally, spiritually? Maybe it's just this. Maybe you, you say to a friend, you know, I want to be a disciple maker. and not exactly sure where to start. But could we get together once a week and just pray for like 15, 20 minutes for our friends who don't know Jesus? Could we do that together? Could we maybe begin to just read a couple chapters of the Gospel of John together because it's so evangelistic and focused on the Gospel? Could we pray for our lost friends? Could we read the Gospel of John together? Could we maybe memorize some verses together? Could we just begin to invest in one another spiritually? Right? Discipleship doesn't have to be all of that complicated to get started. And I want to tell you this morning, my challenge is this, just get started. Right? If you wait and say, well, man, my life isn't cleaned up in this area or that area, I'm not perfect, you will never start. <laughs> you won't. Because you will never be perfect as a disciple or a disciple maker. So I'm just saying, take a risk, get started, because this is the mission of the church. Okay. I'm sorry, I went long, but we can't skip communion, right? Because the Lord said, as you gather together, I want you to do this. I want you to remember. And I want you to be grateful. Because the reason that we have life is because Jesus gave body and blood. So if I can't ask the men to come forward, and I want you just to ask God's Spirit to speak to you particularly as you give thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus, who can you invest your life in beginning this week? And we'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the elements together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, symbolizing the, the, the crushing of his body, the sacrifice that he would make for us. And he told us to, to break bread and remember his sacrifice. Let's take the bread together. And then he took the cup as well, another symbol for his suffering and death. And he said, this cup is new covenant in my blood. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And we pray that out of uh, hearts that are, that are so grateful and filled with joy, that we find freedom and obedience to you and uh, just purpose and meaning in investing our, our lives not in uh, the things of the world that, that are just for this lifetime or that can be taken from us and rust and, rust, rust and moths can corrupt them and, and thieves break in and steal. But we would actually, Father... Uh, invest in, in what you love. We'd invest in the people around us. Father, I pray that we'd find our satisfaction and fulfillment in that. pray that as you send us forth, we would go forth in the, in the power of your spirit, in, in boldness and confidence, and in faith and trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for letting me preach at you a little bit this morning because, you know, this kind of passion on my heart. So go make disciples this week. We'll see what happens.